0: Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. This is the Word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Thus says the Lord.
1: Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, which illumines our minds and our understandings. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless your word to our hearts today and that you would grant us wisdom, Lord, to apply it to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Bernie Madoff was an investment banker, stockbroker. And executive chairman of the Nasdaq stock market in the early 1990s. Madoff's investment firm managed the finances of many of Hollywood's A-list celebrities, sports figures, politicians, and business executives, as well as ordinary people. Madoff's firm was extremely popular and well-respected for their ability to turn a huge profit for their investors. As a result of Madoff's success, people were eager to put their trust in him. They were literally lining up to invest their life savings with him. His outstanding reputation as an investor gave him an image of respectability and legitimacy in the minds of his clients. Tragically, however, in March of 2009, Madoff admitted to running a Ponzi scheme and defrauding investors out of Literally billions of dollars over the course of a 17 year period, possibly even longer. Madoff's hypocrisy had wide ranging effects as thousands of his clients' lives were ruined, many families destroyed, including his very own. Most of his investors lost everything they had, and several of them committed suicide, including Madoff's very own son, as he could no longer live with the guilt of his father's crimes. In June of 2009, Madoff was convicted and sentenced to 150 years in prison and forced to either forfeit $170 million in restitution. Now, the reason I share this story with you this morning is to illustrate to you the disastrous effects of hypocrisy, of a person pretending to be something that they are not. And hypocrisy occurs when a person's behavior contradicts who they claim to be and what they claim to believe. And that's the situation that we find Paul confronting this this morning in Romans chapter two, the hypocrisy of his fellow Jewish people who were relying on their own ability to keep the law for salvation, who believed that their status as descendants of Abraham guaranteed God's favor and blessing. They were religious hypocrites who affirmed their belief in God in theory while denying him in practice. Now you remember in chapter one, Paul had explained that all men were condemned by God because they rejected his revelation of himself, both in creation and in conscience. Then in chapter two, Paul argued that the same condemnation extends not only to the Gentiles, but even to the most moral, even to the most religious person, apart from Jesus Christ, especially Paul's fellow Jews, because they believed that they themselves were exempt from God's judgments, since they were the physical descendants of Abraham, who, unlike the Gentiles, possessed the law of God and circumcision. So in our passage this morning, Paul is confronting the Jews who are religious people who have been externally blessed with all the trappings of religion and its various privileges, but who still do not believe the gospel. They are hypocrites who do not practice what they preach while attempting to instruct or teach others. But Paul's rebuke here to the Jews is not out of any animosity towards them. He has no animosity towards his Jewish brothers, but out of love for them, for the purpose of exposing their hypocrisy and awakening them to the danger of continuing on in that condition. Now, with that being said, we'll examine our passage today under three three headings. Religious privilege, verses 17 through 20. Religious hypocrisy, verses 21 and 22 and hypocrisy's tragic effect, verses 23 and 24. But first, religious privilege, verses 17 through 20. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now here, Paul lists several privileges that were almost enjoyed exclusively by the Jewish people for centuries. First, they were privileged to be called Jews. The term Jew in verse 17 comes from the Hebrew word for Judah, which if you remember, was one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. The name literally means worshiper of God and historically came to be identified with the Jewish people as a whole. So you might see how historically that name came not only to be uh, popular among the Jews, but also was used as sort of a badge of honor among the Jewish people, because they were privileged to be descendants of Abraham, people and a nation chosen by God himself. So they were privileged to be called Jews. Second, they were privileged with the law so that, as Paul said, they relied on it; That is, they were blessed to possess the law. Third, they were privileged to know God and to have a relationship with him. They had a relationship with the true and living God who also dwelt among them. Fourth, Paul said that they were also privileged to know God's will. Unlike the Gentiles, they possessed God's special revelation of himself. They had the word of God, which contained God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Fifth, they were privileged to be able to approve, Paul says, what is excellent, because they were instructed from the law. God's word enabled them to apply the law to themselves and make sound moral judgments in life so that they could approve what was good, having been instructed in the synagogues from their childhood. Lastly, Paul says they were privileged to be able to teach others since they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, the Jews had the special privilege of being called by God to teach others, to be a light to the nations in order to show the world what God was really like. So you can see that unlike any other nation, the Jews enjoyed a special religious privilege, a privilege that came from God. Yet, in spite of all of these privileges, the vast majority of them remained unconverted and ignorant of the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And tragically, this sort of thing happens to religious people all the time. It happens to people just like me and just like you. You see, like the Jews, we also enjoy many of these same privileges that are listed here by Paul today. We are called Christians. We have a unique relationship with the true God. We are privileged to have the Bible so that we know God's will and can approve what is excellent. Having been instructed in God's word, we also teach others. So if Paul wrote to us, it would probably sound something like this. Okay, you call yourself a Christian and you rely on Reformed theology. You boast in God. You claim to know his will. You approve of what is excellent, being instructed in the Reformed faith. You trust that you have the purest form of doctrine among all other denominations. Are instructors to the foolish and teachers to children, having not only the embodiment of truth but also truth itself? You, then, you reformed Christian who dare to teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who teach that we must glorify God above all things, do you glorify God yourself? You who teach the necessity of regeneration for salvation, are you regenerate yourself? You see what Paul is implying here is that it's very possible for a person to have all of these religious privileges and yet still remain unconverted. That's a scary thought. That touches us all as Christians. because We are a people who are very religious. You see, what Paul is saying is that our religion, our church membership, our baptism, our theology, our Reformed convictions as well as our repentance and faith. None of these things, Paul says, can be the basis of our righteousness in the day when God judges the secrets of men by the Lord Jesus Christ. If they are, then tragically, we too will be condemned along with all the other hypocrites. You see, there's a world of difference between possessing religious privileges and possessing saving faith. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with religious privileges in and of themselves. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're a great blessing from God if used correctly. He himself commands us to take advantage of the privilege of training up our children in his word. He commands us as individual believers to take advantage of the means of grace and so on. And all these privileges are a means that God uses to create faith and repentance in the hearts of his people. Unfortunately, however, having these privileges also creates the opportunity for them to be neglected, abused, and distorted by sin. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, if you abuse or neglect the religious privileges that God has graciously bestowed upon you, you are in grave danger of being a religious hypocrite. That's what Paul wants to explain to us in verses 21 through 22. So let's look at our second point, religious hypocrisy. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Since verse one of chapter two, Paul has been convicting the Jews on the basis of God's law that they themselves were unable to keep it. They were hypocrites who were judging others wrongly. And here in verses 21 through 24, he points out three specific ways in which they themselves violated God's law. Verse 21b, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? Verse 21a, 22a, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Verse 22b, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, what Paul is doing is cleverly accusing the Jews of violating the eighth commandment against stealing, the seventh commandment against adultery, and the second commandment against idolatry. Now, while I don't believe that there's any specific meaning to the way that these commandments were arranged by Paul in the text, I do believe. That Paul chose these particular commandments for a reason and not just randomly out of all the other Ten Commandments. Why do I believe that? You see, Paul's goal in the first three chapters of Romans was to demonstrate logically how both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin and likewise guilty of violating God's law. In fact, he even accuses them of committing the very same sins as the Gentiles in verse 1 of chapter 2. So the Jews would have been horrified at the notion that they were guilty of the exact same sins that characterized the lives of Gentiles. They would readily affirm that the Gentiles were immoral, idolatrous thieves. But they would never consider themselves to be guilty before God of committing the exact same sins. But listen to Paul's description of the sins that characterized the Gentiles in Romans chapter one verse twenty-two, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, exchanging God's glory and giving it to created things is a form of stealing. Again, verse twenty-four. Therefore, God also gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here, Paul accuses the Gentiles of various forms of adultery and sexual immorality. And finally, in verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Thus, they were also guilty of idolatry. So here in these verses, Paul condemned the Gentiles of stealing, adultery, and idolatry, which are the same sins that he now accuses the Jews of in our passage today. Paul doesn't stop there because he now wants to show them exactly how they commit these three sins that he just listed. Verse 21b, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You see, like the Gentiles, the Jews were also guilty of stealing by doing things like withholding their tithes and offerings from God. Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God? Yet yeah, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. The Jewish historian Josephus also tells us that there were various scams that the Jews used to embezzle money from the temple. Paul continues in verse 22, you who say that one must commit, not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Again, just like the Gentiles, the Jews also committed adultery because while they may have kept themselves from committing the physical act itself, they were content to indulge in lust in their hearts. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And lastly, in verse 22b, Paul says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, the very fact that uh, the Jews would rob pagan temples implies that they were coveting the prophets from the things that they stole. And might I remind you that Colossians 3, 5, Paul says there that covetousness itself is also a form of idolatry. So we can clearly see that according to Paul, the Jews, in spite of their many privileges, were essentially no better off than the Gentiles because before God, they too were guilty of the exact same sins that they judged in the Gentiles. But even though Paul is speaking to his own people, To Jewish people, I want to make it very clear that he's speaking here to us as well. To all religious people who profess to know the true God. And in a very real sense, all of us are hypocrites at the very core of our being. And none of us as Christians are what we should be. You see, our natural tendency is to read these verses and to cut ourselves some slack even though we pass judgment on others for the sins that we ourselves commit. But you see, we too are guilty of the sins of idolatry, adultery, and stealing before God, before holy, righteous God. We commit these sins, you see, on a spiritual level. We commit spiritual idolatry in our hearts when we covet and lust after the things of this world and place them first and foremost before God in our hearts things like wealth, financial prosperity, beauty, or our physical appearances. We also commit sexual immorality by watching porn and lusting after members of the opposite sex. And as we do these things, we too are guilty of stealing from God and robbing him of the glory that he so richly deserves. Thank God that through the power of the Holy Spirit, these sins do not characterize us, the lives of Christians on a whole, but sadly, our sins that we ourselves are guilty of more often than we ought to be. The Apostle Paul here is pointing out our inconsistency and warning us that the sin of hypocrisy dwells in each and every last one of us. Listen to the words of Melvin Wheatley as he speaks on the sins of religious hypocrisy. We are split spiritual personalities. We swear allegiance to one set of principles and live by another. We extol self-control and practice self-indulgence. We proclaim brotherhood and harbor prejudice. We laud character, but strive to climb to the top at any cost. We erect houses of worship, but our shrines are our places of business and recreation. We are suffering from a distressing cleavage between the truths we affirm and the values we live by. Our souls are the battlegrounds for civil wars, but we are trying to live serene lives in houses that are divided against themselves. Profound, isn't it? Finally, this leads us to our third point, Hypocrisy's tragic effect. So Paul continues in verse 23 to show us the tragic effect of religious hypocrisy. Verse 23, he says, You who boast in the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then he quotes Isaiah 52. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Isn't it a terrible thing that the consequence of our hypocrisy is that we dishonor God and ruin our testimony as Christians. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of a co-worker who embezzled a large sum of money from a bank that they both worked at. This co-worker also happened to be a preacher. The reason that he embezzled the money was that he had two wives and two families that he himself had to support. And after being caught, he had the audacity to ask if he should still preach on Sunday. Briscoe goes on to say that not only did his fellow co-workers despise this man, but they were also quick to dismiss the church that he belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites, the gospel that he professed to believe as hogwash, and the God that he claimed to serve as non-existent. You know what? They were right. That man's religion, that man's church, and that man's God were all non-existent. You know, as Christians, our credibility with unbelievers takes a very long time to build, but unfortunately, a short time to lose. And that's, what it's, that's what's at stake when we dishonor God by living and acting hypocritically as Christians. We damage our witness to unbelievers. You see, if you're a Christian, you have no choice. The Bible doesn't recommend that you be a witness for Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you are a witness for Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not. So the question is, are you a good witness or bad? There are only two options. Your witness is either good or bad. And Paul is reminding us here that all of us are witnesses for the gospel. And therefore, we ought definitely to make it count. Now, in conclusion, I must admit that in preparing this sermon, I constantly heard the word of God preaching to my very own heart calling me the biggest hypocrite of all. But it's also that very knowledge of my own heart that keeps me running to the Lord Jesus Christ daily in order to confess my sins and to turn to him for forgiveness. You see, our religious hypocrisy is just one of the many sins that the Lord Jesus Christ bled and died for on the cross of Calvary. And the message of the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ not only lived a life free from the sin of hypocrisy, but he also lived a life free from all sin. A perfect life. A life that met the righteous requirements of God's law on behalf of sinners from every race, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Brothers and sisters, my prayer today is that as Christians, God would bless us to use our religious privileges wisely as a means to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and to cherish his work of redemption on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, Lord, in our hearts, we know that we are hypocrites deep down inside. But we thank you, Lord, that Christ died for the ungodly hypocrisy included. We ask, Lord, that you would apply all the means of grace to our hearts, Lord, that we may not abuse our privileges, but that we may cherish them, Lord, and see them for what they are, a means, O oh Lord, to show us the save the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world. Father, thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. In his name we pray.